Introducing Mortgage Matters. He has no idea how bad it is out there. He has no idea. A show dedicated to helping you navigate a challenging and ever-changing financial and real estate landscape. The economy continues to face numerous difficulties. Now, your hosts, Dan Podesto and Jason Brody of Central Coast Lending. The fact that you're being called upon to help clean up Wall Street's mess is an outrage. Broadcasting outrage. live from the KVEC studios in San Luis Obispo. What economy are you talking about? Talking it's about, time for Mortgage Matters. Well, hello. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Mortgage Matters. The uh, soggy edition. Oh, Rain. <laughs> Rainy Saturday. Yeah. Well, actually, Crazy. today. it's not. This is supposed to be the clear day. This is the calm. The calm we before be, the storm. We must be in the eye of the storm. <laughs> raining pretty hard up in the north county yesterday was it it was raining on the grade right now when i came down uh look who's walking into the studio right now boy I'm telling you <laughs> <laughs> uh anyway so yeah it's it's it was um interesting actually yeah. i got caught in pismo yesterday with the freeway flooding out and all that crazy yeah <clears throat> i saw they had to evacuate sycamore mineral springs yeah had some flooding going on down there mm. Yeah. Did you see the uh, video of El Capitan flooding? I did not. Wow. That's, That's crazy. It's a, a lot of water. Uh -huh. I know we're in a drought, so everybody's yeah. been praying for rain. Yeah, but let's not get it all at one time. Yeah, it's really kind, of kind of weird to get it fun. in one straight shot like yeah. that, I guess. But hey, yeah, beggars can't be choosers. That's, That's what my dad right. always said. That's right. But we're supposed to get um, really a lot tomorrow. Tomorrow. Tonight and tomorrow. Starting at about 11 o'clock tonight. This is the big storm, right? Yeah. This is the big one. One to four here. Yeah. That's what I heard. Mm-hmm. Now watch this. I want to get a rain gauge. A tenth of an inch. Did you get a rain gauge? <laughs> no, but I have this bucket. I have a five-gallon bucket that I use to like pull weeds and put them in there to then go empty them. And so that fills up every time it rains, and I just throw a ruler in there. I mean, I guess it's the same thing. Does it not Somewhat. work? I think so. I don't know. The, here's the thing I always wonder about is like, if the opening to what you're using to it's measure is too... It's pretty much the same. I mean, it's it's pretty cylindrical. It's not too... If, if rain's coming down yeah. sideways, or is it catching too much? Is it yeah, catching too know. little? I don't know. I, I don't know. Because the rain gauges are probably just a standard opening on top, right? Yeah. yeah. Although there's a lot... The one I have, there's more than an inch between one and two and three and four and all that. Sure. So I don't know why why it would be more oh. than an inch between those numbers. Huh. So So your readings might be a little light then. <laughs> possibly. Yeah, I don't know. I I want to be able to measure that. I swear my house gets more rain than when everyone else is like, oh, I got two inches. I'm like, we got a foot. Yeah, it felt my, like it, right? My house gets rained on yeah. hard. Mm -hmm. And it's funny, too. You guys probably get the John's, John Lindsay email or at least. Um, yeah. yeah. So yeah, John. there's readings from all over the county, various people that take it. And you can tell, mm -hmm. like even in Atascadero, there's a few different places that they post the readings from. And they can. They can different. Yeah. They can vary quite a bit from yeah. one guy's. Ring. It would be one guy's using the bucket with the ruler. Over <laughs> there it here. is. Yeah. And yeah, Dad didn't mention that he's good friends with John Lindsay, and he's like, you know, 
Are you getting yours posted on John Lewis? Morro Bay at oh, yeah. DP's house with the it's, bucket and ruler. It's actually, I mean, it seems fairly in line. With I what mean, I'm, I bet it's just fine. Yeah. What's with this rock? Is it Rocky Butte that's up by San Simeon? Yeah. Oh, they said. It gets like 40 something inches of rain while the rest yeah. of us get 10. Yeah. What's going on up there? I wonder, <laughs> that yeah. might be the top part of the um the Nasimino watershed too because Nasimino has like if you guys have did you see yesterday Monterey County posted the um San Antonio and Nasimino lake totals for the like preceding 4 days no oh, San no. Antonio went from like 14% to 16% or something wow. meanwhile Nasimino went from the teens to like the sixties. Well, it, it wasn't <laughs> quite that dramatic because it filled. I mean, it was at twenty some twenty low twenties, and then it went to thirty, and then to forty. Now it's at like sixty one percent or something in the last few days. Is it's just growing like crazy? And of course, a lot of the lake filling has to do with the watershed that's around, and then the sort of charging from the ground as all that water uh, okay. trickles through so it'll uh, be maybe that kind of answers your question there dan rocky butte it looks like it's somewhat the clouds like, are running yeah. into it basically i think it is about where you said you know near hearst castle and san yeah. simian and all that yeah because yeah. they do show hearst castle there so it's probably just like a interesting little uh ridge where the clouds hit and it just yeah. congregates precipitation for you yeah it's nice mm-hmm they should put a they should put a water catchment right there and like <laughs> yeah. run a pipe down to San Antonio cuz San Antonio needs a little help. San Antonio fills up a lot slower, I guess, as watershed's not quite as good. Yeah. Um big big exciting week. Yeah. Yeah, what's new? Oh, the president. <laughs> yeah. Oh, by the way, there's a new president. We need a new open. Oh, I know. We rode that one for a long time. Yeah. We had President Obama's um, mm-hmm. voice in there, and and don't we have Greenspan? Maybe in we there should still? get one of Trump saying something. Is it? Is I that think Greenspan? So. That's a blast from the past. We could get one of or, Trump saying, or maybe it's Bernanke. You know, we'll say, "Here comes Mortgage Matters," and Trump's going to go, "It's going to be huge, huge, huge." <laughs> That'd be cool. Because you know, our show is. Huge. 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 <laughs> it's tremendous. I kind of thought that uh, the stock market was going over 20,000 relatively soon. Then there was like five loser days in a row. Um, yesterday, the Dow ended up a little bit. So you got, it's at 19,827 though. Remember those days where it was. 6,000? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I was saying. Was I do. It was only eight years 19, ago. 19,960. <laughs> you know, it was flirting. Yeah, 6,000. Oh, man. What's the lesson there? Put all your money in stocks when it goes to 6,000. <laughs> or don't sell them all when it goes to 6,000. I heard a few people that, like, panicked and sold out when it was, you know, it's falling like that and then just didn't reinvest like ah that ride's too crazy for me and then just stayed out just lost a ton of money and then didn't get the benefit of any of the rebound at all i wish i knew if it was going to six thousand again so i'd sell 
shortly before and then buy at 6,000. Right. You know? <clears throat> if only. But yeah, the uh, tenure sure shot up this week, too. I'm sure you saw that, Dan. We closed yesterday at 2.47. Um, there was a, the uh, Friday, I remember last Saturday, we were on here talking about how it kind of was heading down to the bottom of a range. Two, yeah. 2.35 yeah. 2. or so it was. And yeah. There we, and there was some resistance there, and so really, it's definitely bounced off of that. Really reinvigorated my enthusiasm and optimism for believing in lower rates, and then, <laughs> and then right after that, man, did those those expectations were really shattered. We sort of just bounced right, pretty close back to where we were. Yeah. There was a, I mean, is obviously not all the way, but there was some pretty interesting. Um, Lots of good news this week I saw economically. In fact, I found myself, as I was compiling the notes, feeling stung by the movement of the 10-year. I was listing out the reasons. Well, there's reason number one. Ah, that's reason number two. There goes reason number three. I found, you know, all of the data that I was putting together for the week uh, made me realize that there's a few things in there that are uh, definitely causing that. Part of which was some testimony that we saw. Um, also, Janet Yellen's been making some comments. Did you see? I know we don't talk about this one a lot lately, but I'm bringing it back up again because Thursday was wild with initial jobless claims. Do you see that read? The 43 year low of initial jobless claims. I did see that. Only 234,000 people for the week looking for first-time unemployment benefits. And, wow, 43 years. That's a that's quite the low watermark. Mm-hmm. This time of year, too. Don't you think that's odd? Yeah, you would expect January you would have more given the, the holiday layoffs that occur. Sure. Well, and you got, like... I mean, are there any polar vortex going on right now? I think there's weather all across the country. It's crazy weather, <laughs> yeah. it seems. Yeah, I've got friends in it's very... the Pacific Northwest and in the Minnesota area and stuff just posting pictures of their snow. Their, yeah. I mean, you know, we're talking about the crazy rain totals. They're getting, snow. you know, one inch of, of rain is how, what, a foot of snow? Yeah. yeah so. Well, it can be. Something like that. You can call yeah. it that way. They're getting crazy amounts of snow. Three feet at a time. Yeah. It's. Yeah, even Pretty Big wild. Bear. Um, yeah. When I was a kid, Big Bear used to get dumped on with snow. It would be, it wouldn't be uncommon where we'd go to bed and wake up in the morning to one to three feet of snow. That would happen several times a year. Mm-hmm. We went through this period where those were like distant fond memories. That mm-hmm. just didn't happen anymore. You'd get these dustings that would melt before the sun came up. You yeah. know, they're getting pounded with snow again this week. Um, yeah. One one report I saw said they could get as much as six feet of snow. Yeah. Tahoe, of course, has been pounded. A month yeah. ago, Tahoe was getting a lot of headlines that the uh, lake was overflowing. It's like natural spill point was overflowing. The Truckee River was running, and mm-hmm. and they they must have gotten ten feet of snow since those calls were made. Yeah. Well, right before Christmas, I I. Got a chance to sneak up to Tahoe for a day after visiting my family in Sacramento, and we went to Sierra at Tahoe. It's one of the the first resorts you come to as you go up Highway 50. 
and it was you know three quarters of the mountain open a lot of little treetops sticking out on the runs and rocks and stuff you know i mean it was adequate but not great mm-hmm. and then a couple weeks later after the that big round of rain i saw that some of the lifts they had to i mean they had to close the whole mountain because snow was covering yeah, the, the chairs yeah, yeah the chairs were buried that's wild. Which are so that's not good 30, for the meat. 40, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, feet off there. That's crazy. <laughs> it yeah. was pretty wild. Yeah. Amazing. So, yeah, it seems like an interesting time to me that you would see record 43-year initial job claims. Level. Yeah. Maybe people all did get laid off, but they just couldn't reach the unemployment office. <laughs> possibly they were snowed yeah, in and rained in. Snowed and flooded mud, Mudded in. <laughs> Their bridges washed yeah. out. Yeah, feels awfully wet. Oh, and, um, <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, those numbers are looking pretty good. Slow. Yeah, I was trying to look for like something good to tie together right to that, but <laughs> that was that was really like point number seven on the list here of of why the ten year went up this week. Consumer you know, prices. Yeah, consumer prices are rising. Yep. And that that's part of what the Fed's been talking about lately too is that with, you know, the unemployment rate nice and low, argue that the economy's close to to fully employed is is what's being talked about. Um once you reach full employment as well as the 2% inflation target, that's where the Fed that basically, I mean, since we've been doing this show now forever, um, those that was the goal: full employment and target inflation. And that's that was basically how long we would expect monetary policy to be so accommodating. And so now that you see those things coming together, uh, of course, this last week there was no shortage of articles being written about um, whether the Feds are behind now. Are they? Did they? They take too long to respond, and are we about to go, you know, overheated with too much inflation? Would that cause more rapid increase, you know, the rate increases to be more rapid? We spent last year debating if you were going to see at the next meeting, would they raise rates? And this time, this year, the debate could turn into... Uh, are they going to raise it by just a quarter? <laughs> Would they raise it by more? So that'll be interesting to see. I mean, I don't, I don't know if there's anything you can do but just hang out and watch. But, yeah, the Fed Chair Yellen was saying this week that um, her her comments were viewed as quite hawkish and saying that there's a the economy's making a pretty strong case to sustain higher rates, and so... There you go. I think that's probably a pretty big part of when you add all these things up. That's probably a pretty big part of why the Fed, or I'm sorry, why the bond yield, you know, went up this week. December inflation numbers on the CPI went up 0.3 percent, um, taking out food and energy. Take out point. That's just 0.2 percent. That was right as expected. There wasn't anything surprising there. It's been kind of normal compared. Um, there was a, did you look at the, I know this, the beige book came out this week, Dan. One of my faves. Yeah. Did you look at that? <laughs> sure. Is it actually beige again this year? 
It's always beige. Always beige. It's always beige. Just, oh, you were thinking it was color rated, like based yeah, on how exciting no. it was. Uh, well, I just we'll only hit, looked at. <laughs> we'll hit orange level this year. Yeah. No. <laughs> no. Beige is turning into a very, very nice brown. Mm-hmm. It's got some good sheen to it. Yeah, I just remember last year about this time we looked it up on the internet, and it was actually a beige book. Yeah, that'll probably mm-hmm. never change. Okay. You know, some things aren't supposed to change. This is a beige book. What'd the beige book say? Yeah, the new beige. Beige book painted a, you know, picture that I think we're pretty familiar with, moderate to modest growth. It it did speak to inflation a little bit, saying that price pressures were um, described as only slight to modest. So as far as, you know, pressure for the Fed to raise rates faster. It's not out of control. The beige book might suggest that that's not necessary at this time. Um, so that, you know, the beige book said that inflation would not be a factor at, at this time for higher rates, but I think, you know, the course we're on still, still points to, you know, three to four of those rate hikes this year, which would help hopefully keep up with a, with a growing economy. Yeah. That's exciting. The beige book. Very exciting. <laughs> Philly fed index. Measures manufacturing activity in the mid-Atlantic states. That hit a two-year high. That was another thing this week on the list. When you see manufacturing data popping up like that, that's a good thing, usually suggesting that you're on a growth cycle. So that was very exciting. Um, Tossed into the mix, too. I mean, right as expected, but the European Central Bank met up last week to decide... um, what they were doing with their rates and they basically just um did the old hold which got which was what was expected um no rates up or down there and another another kind of hot spot this week was the um housing starts yeah i was just looking at that housing starts and building permits were um you know arguably another reason why that bond yield shut up when when you look at that it said effectively um gangbusters at the rate yeah it really is i mean housing starts up 11.3% to a 1.2 um million annualized rate what was it just i f- i feel like last year we were talking about seven or eight hundred thousand for the annual rate and and that's well below what i mean we've talked about this a lot the and we've kind of debated what the number is to keep up with just population growth somewhere between one and two million and we've been well under that for 10 years plus here we are now exceeding the one million annual rate which is good so maybe we're actually keeping up with population growth depending on you, how fast we're growing you could you could start to draw that conclusion um it doesn't speak much to the catch-up that's needed right, to, to right. replace much of that missing inventory but and this is just one month's activity projected over a 12-month period right. so so it has sh- to keep up yeah but nonetheless that's a that's data that you like to see i mean and the permits data i'd suggest is um almost more important well it's an indicator of of what the climate is 
if they're getting permits, if builders are getting permits, they've got land, they've got a plan, they've got a budget, they've typically got funding, and they're sure. ready to, to do it. Um, I mean, I I started to say they're more important. It's not more important. It's, it's an indicator of what the economy looks like going forward and, and what this this housing workforce looks like, what their plans are. Um, of course, housing starts are really important because that what's better than a shovel-ready project? Right. <laughs> the shovel in the ground. You know, that's that's a pretty exciting thing, too. So just seeing those numbers, I think, also contributed to um, you know, additional data that the housing market is strong, and you kind of lump all, that thing, all those things together with the rest of this data. Uh, most of what came out last week was pretty positive, wasn't it? I mean, I didn't really see anything in all of my reading that made it look like there was um, instability or shaky ground ahead. Um, there was a couple of things I saw that I think um, were interesting. I mean, uh, one of the notes I read, I feel like I bring up Wells Fargo on the show a lot. Do you think so? Is it too much? Am I going to get a nasty gram from Wells Fargo? Why don't one you of these pick days? on a different one? How about Chase? Because Wells Fargo <laughs> just announced that it's closing 400 branches over the next two years. Wow. I didn't read that about Chase. Maybe they are too. Um, they, they said it was mainly due to online banking trends. You know what I did this week, Dan? You'd be so proud of me. What's that? I took a picture of a check with my smartphone and deposited it into the bank account. Oh, I do that all the time. I know. I'm just... You know, I figured I had to join the party. Truth be told, I didn't do it. My wife did it, but I watched. <laughs> and it worked. Yeah. It posted to the account and everything. So these kinds of things, as people start to dabble in right. doing some of these banking things, it, it removes some of that need for brick and mortar and and employees in branches. And So do you have a, I'm just curious. Probably would be better off radio but anyway do you have a do you have a limit on the amount the size of the check you can mobile deposit i don't know the one we did my willingness to to do this was like a i got a refund from state farm for um they didn't cancel one of the insurance policies when they were supposed to and by the time they figured out they owed me 100 bucks they sent uh, me 100 bucks but um i don't know i don't know the answer to that question mine I'll, has a cap what is it it's five thousand bucks Per day, so it can be one check or multiple checks. But that's probably it, smart though, because what if you're like on a bender in Vegas? Well, I asked the branch. I'm like, what's the difference? What if I have a check for six thousand bucks? Why can't I? I have to come to the branch for that one. Well, you got to like, draw a line somewhere. Why? What if there's a twenty thousand dollar check? What's wrong with that? Well, you drew it on a bar napkin and took a picture of it because you're on a bender in Vegas and you needed more money. So you take a picture, they make it available to you. You take it all out of the ATM and it. It's not a real check. Well, I mean, you could still apply holds for certain checks. You would prefer a hold? Yeah. For me, it's the convenience of not having... I. I Maybe there's something to do within banking regulation, though, that we're okay with you guys doing these digital checks and depositing it with pictures from your cell phone up to a limit. They all get imaged anyway. When you go to the ATM, now it spits out an image on my receipt. I don't, I'm just spitballing, I don't get dude. It. I don't get it. I think maybe there's, yeah, I don't know. You just want it to be all go. 
Well, no matter what, here's a million dollar check, guys. I won the lottery. There's like two brand, Put it two in my bank. golden one branches a in the county, and there's not one in Morro Bay. I don't want to have to drive to Slow or Atascadero every time I need to deposit a check. Switch well, banks. My worry kind of like there. they know me. <laughs> <laughs> no, my worry would be a little bit like Jason is how do you know the check's really a real check? Yeah, you got to get comfortable but with it. But how do you right. know the hundred dollars? Oh, so we're okay yeah. with fake hundred dollar checks, but well, not Dan, fake six thousand. Well, no, checks. I'm not. Fake, well, it's you know, a lot easier no checks, to like but... absorb a hundred dollar yeah. loss than a five thousand dollar loss. Right, exactly. I don't think the bank's absorbing any yeah. loss. I think they're coming back and saying, "Hey, you owe me a hundred bucks." Uh, they probably are. <laughs> so, and then here's your collection. <laughs> the the piece. I mean, the check itself. If you can validate the check, what does it matter what number is handwritten on it? That's what I don't understand. Yeah. You anyway, win. I digress. Yeah. Let's go back to Dan wants it just to be all go. <laughs> yeah. Just let me take a picture. We've got the technology. Let's use it. This stuff's great. Not, you probably want to take a picture of a picture of a check and yeah, deposit it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, yeah. 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 And that's another thing. How, what would, it's going to get well, too blurry. What would be yes. like the thing of like somebody taking a picture and then sending it to somebody else and then that person tries to deposit that? Well, check it's in. only got one name on it. Oh, true. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. We'll have to find out. Maybe there's a banker listening who wants to tell us why it's five grand. I suspect it has something to do with regulation. Like I said, better off air. I should have saved it. I couldn't. <laughs> By the way, by the way, you guys, that's the kind of thing we do talk about during the breaks. <laughs> we get off the microphones and we talk about silly stuff like that. That's still kind of related. Um, speaking of breaks, let's do one. Yeah, let's it's take the one. middle of the hour. So we're going to do a commercial break here. Take some time to thank the sponsors. We'll be back in a minute with more Mortgage Matters. To ask a question or make a comment, call 543-8830 or 800-549-5832. Mortgage Matters on KVEC News Talk 920 will be back after these messages from our sponsors. For those of us who live here on the Central Coast, we know this is a unique place to have a home. And for over 30 years, Patterson Realty has been a vital part of San Luis Obispo County. Patterson professionals have led the way in real estate by adapting to new market conditions to make sales happen. What they offer is the quality of their people. Agents working just for you. Get the experts at Patterson Realty on your side. Experience the Patterson difference. Call 544-8662 or online at pattersonrealty.com. We're the mortgage experts on the Central Coast. Central Coast Lending. Central Coast Lending. When you buy or refinance a home. Just call 543 Loan. Just call 543 Loan. Just call 543 Loan. We're the mortgage experts on the Central Coast. Central Coast Lending. Central Coast Lending is locally owned and operated with locations in Paso Robles, Morro Bay, San Luis Obispo, and Arroyo Grande. This is Jason Grody with Central Coast Lending. I see you at our kids' Little League games, I bump into you at the grocery store, and it's always fun when we pass each other at Farmer's Market. I'm not a national bank or a faceless website. I'm a local lender, accountable, competitive, and ready to help. Call Central Coast Lending today. When you buy or refinance a home, just call 543 Central Coast Lending. Central Coast Lending is an equal housing opportunity real estate broker. California Bureau of Real Estate number 01839608. NMLS number 328-358. Welcome back. You're listening to Mortgage Matters with hosts Dan and Jason from Central Coast Lending. If you want to join the conversation, call the show at 543-8830 or 800-549-5832. Now, here's Dan and Jason. 
It's a huge problem. It's really New Hampshire has a huge heroin problem. I mean, per capita, the biggest in the whole country. Nobody would know that. But New Hampshire has a huge heroin problem. Well, first of all, I'm a huge Second Amendment person. I'm a huge believer in clean air. I'm not a huge believer in the global warming <laughs> phenomenon. Things rough. done, and you get things done. <laughs> You're a rough guy. You've been rough. You threatened to sue me and my parents for giving birth to me. No, I would never do that. That's no, exactly no, what you did. You played no, no, very no, rough sometimes. The world. And you know, I'm a huge fan of your mother. I don't know, you know, your mother and well, my mother. Well, she's watching right now, so don't say anything about me. She'll be very upset. Well, you know I'm how she felt about your, your parents. Mother, and my mother loved you. What, 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 what happened to just using music to come back to the break? I just thought this was funny. A huge heroin problem. I had a teacher in high school that pronounced all of the H's as Y's. <laughs> she said things like the human race and I it I'll never forget that it it was scarring to me do it's you're supposed to use the H right pretty sure pretty sure you're supposed to use the H um damn yes you want to take a stroll down memory lane with me real quick you can piece sure. together a couple of these parts here. So back in the real early 2000, let's go 2003, was probably about the arrival of our first Deutsche Bank product, right? Uh, yeah, that sounds about right. Somewhere in that. Real close three, to that. Three, four range, yeah. And so do you recall... Who Deutsche Bank was related to or how they got on the radar of our local mortgage company, um, I seem to recall that it was perhaps people, well, was it, was it a warehouse line that we had? Uh, I don't know about that. I mean, that was the season in mortgage banking where investors saw the profit potential in mortgage and really went out and solicited you. I mean, that's Kind of what I thought. I was a little removed from the investor relationships at that time. Uh, you know, I was more focused on the loan sales themselves, whereas there's another person in the company making the investor, the initial investor contacts. Well, I seem to remember like the day that we just had Deutsche Bank product. Yeah, and it was um, it was on the heels of we were using Credit Suisse, and I remember a little bit more about Credit Suisse. Credit Suisse was a warehouse bank, ultimately, that we had that decided that they wanted to begin buying loans directly. And the most, the thing that made the biggest impression on me was that we had a binder back in the underwriting dungeon. We had this binder of emails. And Credit Suisse at that time didn't really have any underwriting guidelines of their own. And so they asked us, to basically, if you're going to, if because we would say, well, what do you, how do you want to treat this? The, the kid's going to buy a house, okay? But he's been living with his mom and dad. And, and when you live with your mom and dad, different companies want different things. They want you to prove that you were able to save some money. They want you to prove that you paid some rent with a canceled check or utilities that you paid. They want you to show that you had some financial obligation to your housing expense. Sure. So we would ask Credit Suisse, well, hey, 
how do you guys want us to handle this? Like, is you're the investor, you're going to buy it. We'll do whatever you want, but tell us, give us some guidance. And and Credit Suisse would say things like, well, what do other people expect in this case? And so we would tell them, well. If it's a private party landlord, then usually you have to get canceled checks. If it's a public, you know, like a company landlord, you you could get a verification of rent, which was a form they just filled out. If it was living with mom and dad, then oftentimes there would be like a payment shock type of overlay where, you know, they were only or they would need to have such a credit score or demonstrate that they, you know, they're trying to qualify for a $2,000 a month mortgage. If you've been living with mom and dad for two years, shouldn't you have been able to save that two grand a month into your savings account? So therefore you should have that in savings. There's all these different ways. And so they basically would say things, Credit Suisse would say things like, well, any of those are acceptable to us. Just print somebody else's guideline and stick it in in the file. Yeah. And so... Every loan, I use rent as an example, right? But but there's all these, there's always these issues because ev- this is the thing about um, underwriting that's kind of fun. Okay, I mean this this is the only thing I think about underwriting that's fun is loans are almost like snowflakes. There really aren't two borrowers that are the same. Of course, they have different combinations of credit. Job history, income type. Are you, this guy gets a car allowance. How do you want to handle that? This guy gets commission. This guy has an annual bonus and he doesn't get it until December, but you know, we want to count it. All these different things. And you have to figure out how you apply the rules of the norm to each one of these things. And so I remember Credit Suisse was just really willy nilly. And that was the season we were in. And then all of a sudden there was Deutsche Bank. And Deutsche Bank similarly, had really no underwriting guidelines. They had um, they used contract underwriters to review files at purchase, and our job became really to justify the decision we made with their contract underwriters. But point being, it w- it lacked complete guidance. Uh, it seemed like they showed up in the market overnight with very little idea of what they were doing, what was going on, and started buying loans at pretty good prices. I mean, that's how they were relevant, right? We made a lot of money to sell those types of banks, those loans. So anyway, I, the reason I it was kind of a stroll down memory lane for me because Deutsche Bank's been out of the, the headlines for a while. Um, and then this week they landed here. Um, they signed a $7.2 billion um, settlement with the um, the Department of Justice, the U.S. Department of Justice. This $7.2 billion um, settlement was regarding mortgage securities in the run-up to the financial crisis in 2008. They were basically accused of <laughs> kind of throwing things together willy-nilly and securitizing them um, without a whole lot of structure. And it turns out that many of those loans went bad and they caused some pretty deep losses in a lot of places. So that's kind of crazy, huh? Yeah. Tell me what you think about this. Oh, is it the, the statement from the Department of Justice said, Deutsche Bank did not merely mislead investors. It contributed directly to the international financial crisis. Okay. 
the bank's conduct between 2005 and 2007 fell short of standards and was unacceptable, and that Deutsche Bank um, owes this money now. So there's a civil monetary penalty of $3.1 billion, and then $4.1 billion is owed in consumer relief to homeowners, borrowers, and communities harmed by Deutsche Bank's practices. There's been so much of this settlement money that's been kicked around. By the way, I, I went and kind of poked around. Best number I could come up with is in the U.S. banks in the last three years. Just go back three years. It gets hard to count too far back. But just in the last three years, the settlements from the big banks have been $46 billion. It's pretty incredible. Who's getting this money? These guys are saying that part of this civil monetary penalty is going um, to homeowners, borrowers, and communities. Hmm. <laughs> this is crazy. That's a ton of money. And do you know anybody that got some? Is there a list we can get on? I do not know. The guys that owned that company that sold those Deutsche Bank loans and ultimately lost their company, you know, due to all of that, maybe they got a claim in it. They were harmed. That's kind of wild, huh? Anyway, there's your stroll down memory lane, old Deutsche Bank. And, and you know what else is weird, too? How long do these legacy issues go on for? That's what I'm sitting here thinking. I mean, it's been it's been 10 years or more since these loans have been I didn't even clip it cuz I thought it wasn't too much worth talking about, but I, it was either Bank of America or Citibank. One of the bigs, right? One of the bigs has a settlement this week where they agreed to settle a deal, you know, and made a really strong statement that hey, we're settling this not admitting fault or guilt in any way, but it was um, effectively a discrimination type of claim. And they've, they've really been found essentially guilty. I mean, accused, this is a settlement, right? So some procedures are underway to show that these guys um, acted with prejudice in terms of who they gave loans to. They, they were able to demonstrate that borrowers of certain ethnicities were charged higher interest rates than um, white borrowers. And the most interesting thing about this is that it was all in their broker channel. And the at that era, because it was all legacy stuff still from pre-2009, the pricing was all determined by the broker in these wholesale loans that they're now paying a settlement for for discrimination, saying, well you guys facilitated this discriminatory practice by allowing these brokers to charge more to certain ethnic groups. Hmm. And that's a really fascinating thing because as you well know, anybody that has done this for a living knows that in that era, especially brokers, they could choose any price they want to any borrower they want. So how would an end investor that's basically receiving an application package, making a credit decision on a loan, they're not ultimately, they weren't responsible to the pricing to the borrower. Well, and you're saying broker in a 
in a sense that's a little different than I think of it. Um, Deutsche Bank wasn't. By, or we're talking Deutsche Bank. Sorry. No, th- this is this I th- believe was Bank of America. Oh, Let me Bank look. Of America. Yeah, right. this was a different story altogether. Okay, okay. Basically, one of the investors was accused of receiving brokered loans that pricing demonstrated discriminatory practices. That's interesting because yeah, I guess if within that same brokerage that they're buying loans from, if there's discriminatory pricing practices then that makes sense but if you're saying oh well broker a's you know charging three points and broker b's charging five points you know that's not necessarily discrimination in my opinion those brokers operate on different you know they have different overhead models and different business models altogether so right interesting yeah, and it's hard if you just sort of if you went through the aggregate of loans and said, "All right, well, we've totaled them all up, and this population, this ethnic group, was given a higher interest rate than this ethnic group, so here's your fine." And then the bank says, "Well, we weren't responsible for the interest rate given to the consumer. These loans were originated in a broker channel." Yeah, but as- in an era where broker compensation was not in in this ultimately True. like i it's said like, it's like these they're getting caught in hindsight when the laws didn't exist like they exist today right today you can't do that because there's rules about loan officer compensation altogether right you know it's almost like saying you know to you go and install speed limit signs on monday morning and hand out speeding tickets for people that went through on sunday too fast yeah so um you know, and again, I i mean, it makes sense eth- ethically, but it doesn't seem fair that you can penalize them for a, for breaking a rule that didn't exist at the time. Yeah. And you know, what's funny, too, is we have a few um, of the staff in our company that have only been in the business for five, six, seven years. So I find myself at times, you know, because you forget what people don't know, right? Sure. You have, you've been in the business for a lot longer than that. So you have this broad, everything's like, it has contextual foundation, right? But some of these people, they don't know that how things used to be before these forms, you know, when the loan application was shorter and less invasive and disclosures were seven pages, you know, it's not today. There's a book. How many pages is the disclosure package today? 70 pages or it it depends if you want to count or not in the final closing docs yeah yeah it's 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 100 i mean every closing doc package is 120 plus pages yeah it's a lot and so part of me wonder some of these attorneys or whatever the regulators that are charged with filing these claims against you know whatever big bank it is what if they've only been in the business for seven years so they drop their conclusion of like hey look you guys allowed these brokers to vary their compensation from deal to deal. It could be a coincidence. You know, not that I want to be giving anybody the pass or not. Um, I, 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 like most people, um, want to see those discriminatory behaviors fully, you know, fully vetted and, and eliminated. But what if it's just a coincidence that in this case... They look and say, "Well, you, you've your compensation was more on this ethnic group," and you say, "Well, that's 
virtually coincidental because loan officers, they they did the pricing back then. They chose how much money they could or should or would make on any deal very willy-nilly. Yeah. And when you think about it that way, I found myself actually thinking there's, you know, there is, as crazy as this sounds, there is some um, really positive effect of the new laws where your profit margin is set um, and you don't get to increase or decrease it really on transactions because, I mean, obviously it was a practice that led to people being taken advantage of or exploited either for their, their just naivety or not paying attention or a relationship perhaps. And so some of these laws have, have gone, you know, to, to benefit the consumer, but that's an interesting thing. It's a, it's a, it's a strange thing to, to read about and think about, um, weird like you said it's sort of ethically it makes sense but practically it's it's hard to see that that that's where the fault belongs because you don't really get to go back on a broker transaction you don't really get to go back and find the broker and penalize the broker most of those brokers are probably not in business anymore right from 2005 six seven they now work for someone else or they're in something you know now they're doing financial management (laughs) Yeah, it it's it is odd. Hopefully, this is you know we're getting to the end of these legacy issues and can just operate in the world that we know now because it's it's quite a different environment. Yeah. Switching gears a little bit. Two weeks ago, I'm running around to all the people that I'm spreading the word to about a real positive change that came out with FHA. <laughs> hey. Yeah. FHA, you know, all these loan programs kind of have pros and cons. Sure. FHA, here's the here's the quick pros and cons. <laughs> That's why we exist. Yeah. <laughs> if it was sure clear which channel to go down, you, you probably know. just go do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On FHA, you know, it's accommodating to borrowers with high debt to income ratios, low credit scores, a mix of both. Um, it's accommodating to um, borrowers that have had credit challenges like bankruptcies or foreclosures is more kind of along the lines of the most lenient. Um, need to make lower down payments. Yeah. It you basically non occupying borrower. To help and this is qualify. why this is a government program that's aimed at providing home ownership opportunities to people that, you know, are, are less than stellar. Yeah. And they're the underserved, the people that don't fit into conventional lending guidelines. Yeah. So it's a little bit more tolerant. And as such, there's a mortgage insurance premium that you pay at the at the funding of the loan. It gets financed, and then you pay a monthly mortgage insurance premium. That's kind of similar to some other loan programs too. But those mortgage insurance are um, they're tracked for the performance of overall FHA. Those monies get held, and the idea is that if I make a loan to you, like I just said, you have a low down payment and you have some credit challenges and a high debt-to-income ratio, well, if you go belly up and leave us holding the bag on this house we loaned you money to buy, guess what? 
the mortgage insurance fund has money to correct that problem, which is probably take it through foreclosure, maybe eviction, maybe bribe you with some cash to leave, put it to auction, um, end up reselling it. So maybe you, maybe we loan you $300,000 to buy this house. And at the end of the day, you know, by the time all the dust settles, we could only sell it. And after all of the expenses and going through that whole process, the bank nets 250 grand, they make a claim against HUD for that $50,000 loss and they're cut a check and made whole. That's what this program does. So the one of the bummers about FHA right now, the mortgage insurance lasts for the life of the loan. So you're going to have mortgage insurance forever till you make your last mortgage payment. It goes down with the loan amount. So it's going to stay proportionate and be ever reducing, but it's there forever. Whereas on conventional loans, you can get it to stop after some amount of time. So anyway, there was this announcement a couple of weeks ago that HUD, they, um, and I saw a testimony. I was reading, I was tracking this. There was a rumor mill. Here's what happened. HUD was collecting so much money that the coffers were overflowing. They'd met yeah. these loss reserve requirements, and they're basically being overfunded. I and the amount like of a forty-four billion dollars surplus. In yeah, funds. yeah, which represented a couple percent, which was more than what they were proposing to cut. By. Yeah, it, it was more than they needed too. And then the right. other thing you got to remember is that these are reserves. This was real savings that they had. <laughs> yeah. Um, because there's a constant stream of income every month, too. So the money's still being heaped on, and if there aren't losses, that's going to grow. And so here was the idea. HUD issued a letter and said, we're going to cut the cost of the monthly mortgage insurance by 25 basis points, which would result, they said on average, um, nationally, it would be um, 200 bucks a month. Uh, I saw... Or I'm sorry, 200 bucks. 500 uh, bucks a year. 500 bucks a year. That's right. And I think they were ballparking the average mortgage at about $200,000, would save the average homeowner $500 a year. I also want to interject that this is about the fifth or sixth um, change to the mortgage insurance structure over the last eight years. With Yeah, with you FHA know? loans. Eight years ago, FHA wasn't even a, a popular program. Because it was irrelevant. Were, yeah, there was all these other alternative documentation loans that really took the place of FHA. FHA yeah. came into favor when all of those programs went away and the mortgage insurance was really low, but there were still a lot of losses occurring. So initially the adjustments to the insurance premiums ratcheted. Well, they were, it was necessary to cover the losses. Right. And then as the housing market recovered and the surpluses started to build, there's been what, two or three adjustments to the mortgage insurance downward. Uh-huh. Uh, the most recent was what about a year ago? Yeah, where it went from you know it was about a half a percent cut. This one that was announced about a month ago, which was to take effect next Friday, was another quarter point cut. Right. Um. So we were all anticipating that we were getting ready for it. So last week I shared on the show we talked a little bit about Ben Carson's testimony and some of the interesting things that were happening there. One of the things that he offered up in that testimony was that he thought the timing of that cut was very peculiar. And that sent a, a shot across the bow to basically the industry of like, well, he he went on point 
he made a point to go on record and say that they, that he thought the timing of this reduction in the mortgage insurance premium for HUD, as you're about to shift potentially the guidance of HUD with this new secretary, um, was just, it was interesting. Um, I wish I was a fly on the wall to know in all of those meetings where they were kicking it around is to say, well, look, it's, it's sort of overfunded and we're in a good spot where our solvency is no longer in question. Let's reduce the premium to expand the program and help more people. And so as it turns out yesterday with the inauguration of President Trump and about his new hour. administration, <laughs> yeah. it was officially announced that they'd rescinded that reduction in mortgage insurance. And there wasn't even really a very formal statement on it yet. I suspect it's coming, um, but it's probably a little bit politicized. But but here was the explanation that I was given um, is ultimately that they wanted, and part of this is from words that came from Ben Carson in those meetings, the testimony um, basically said they needed to understand how that exposed the taxpayer right. by making this program more attractive and more affordable. Did it did it potentially lead to um, more problems that, we, that we're not quite ready to deal with? Um, by the way, FHA loan balances... In the month of November, so just a couple short months ago, topped one trillion for the first time ever. Wow! So the FHA loan volume in our country is at an all-time high, and it's a trillion dollars. It's huge, and as we well know, that's there's this dotted relationship of whether or not Fannie was a private or public company and what it is today. Don't be confused. FHA is under HUD, and as such, we the taxpayers. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow, we're the ones on the hook for their solvency. So, you know, you can size that up how you want to. The, was it a smart move? Was it a bad move? Was it was it is it ultimately good or bad? They want some time. The new the new administration and those picks, they want some time to figure out whether or not the effects of this are positive or negative before doing it officially so anyway top of the hour break guys we got a five minute break here so do what you got to do we'll be back for a whole another hour of more mortgage matters stick around you're tuned into mortgage matters which airs every saturday from 9 a.m to 11 a.m your host dan and jason from Central coast lending want you to join the conversation by calling 800-549-5832 now back to the show Well, I love a rainy night. I love a rainy night. I love to hear the thunder. Watch the lightning when it lights up the sky. You know it makes me feel good. Well, I love a rainy night. It's such a beautiful sight. I love to feel the rain on my face. Taste the rain on my legs. In the moonlight shadows. Showers wash all my cares away I wake up to a sunny day Cause I love a rainy night Yeah, I love a rainy night We're back. <laughs> Welcome back. Well, I love a rainy night. <laughs> You're listening to Mortgage Matters well, on KVEC. 920 AM or and 96.5 96 96 FM. FM. 
We sound a lot more sexy, I guess you would say. On the it's, se- it's sexy. There yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's not as high pitched. There it is. Oh, <laughs> uh, sorry. <laughs> you okay over there, Dan? Sorry for coughing look? in the microphone. Needs water. Right Get some me. water if you need some. Okay. Yeah. Right. Still working my way off this <laughs> little cold that's going around. Yeah, boy, I still have a little bit too. Yeah. I had it right after Christmas, man. <sighs> it's crazy. You had it for a couple of weeks, didn't you? Yeah, me. Yeah. 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 I'm working on my second week here. Yeah. It just kind of thinks you think it's gone, and all of a sudden, no, got a little tickle in the throat again, and yeah. there it is. Yeah. <sighs> hmm. Crazy. I don't know. I think you've you've kind of uh, gotten by it this year, haven't you? Yeah, I was telling Dan, um, I got when my around Christmas time when my kids came down with the funk, I and my wife too. Mm-hmm. I had one day where I had the like, you know, that feeling the like, day before oh, you get no. sick where you're oh, no. totally yeah. run down. You find yourself just like, yeah. why am I so out of energy? Yeah. I had that with a scratchy throat, and I just was like, man, I'm done. I'm not going to clear this one. And then the next day, I woke up and I felt great, and I'm like, hmm, super skeptical. But yeah, so far so good, knock on wood. But yeah. we've had one of the gals in our office actually, this was a little bit more than a month ago now, mm-hmm. she got um, the actual influenza virus and mm-hmm. was like... We've had both of those going around the radio. Doctor sure. took her out of where she wasn't even allowed to come and work yeah. for... Four days. Yeah, for four days. She had to stay home and be on some um, drugs that you know would get her to the point where she was clear and... Yeah. You know, because people use that term, oh, I have the flu, home with the flu. The flu's been, that term has gotten mm-hmm. pretty, um, you know, watered down lately. But, yeah, anyway. One of our uh, promotions guys was out with that, that same thing. And we've been just sharing it around here. So, you know, of course, we have these mic socks that are also wonderful and not magnets. You guys bring in your own, you know. Yeah, because so, the the one I pull off of here, it's pretty nasty. I don't even like to touch it in the morning. <laughs> this came from the old building, by the way. Yeah. So yeah, that's wild. Yeah. yeah. Um, you guys might not know what we're talking about at home on these microphones. First of all, you basically talk with your lips rubbing against it right the whole onto time. it. Yeah. Because if like, you're not seriously, if you get any farther away, then it sounds well. Here, it sounds like you're on speakerphone. Okay, here yeah. I am. I'm it about like I'm about a foot away right now from yeah. the microphone. But when I come up here, here it is right here. I this back is two up inches. A foot away, yeah. and then it starts there to get tinny. Yeah. But if you get right up on it, then your yeah. voice sounds. Yeah, you know, the authoritative way you need it to sound when you're trying to do convincing talk radio. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> there it is. Because yeah. of that, that wind, there's this wind sock on there. That's this piece of foam, you mm-hmm. know, that uh, is maybe half inch thick or something. Mm-hmm. The ones that are on here, we Dan bought us some a couple yeah. years ago. Yeah. They're a year, man, well, a little more than a year ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when we come in in the morning, we pull off this one that I don't even really like to touch. Yeah. It's got a it's got a crust, crust over the uh, end yeah. of it. For yeah, real, we need to invest. We need to invest. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think I picked these up for about four bucks. Yeah. So yeah, we need. To if I was if you, we're like doing a fund, I'll chip yeah, in. I'll chip I need in some, a buck. I need two. my own. If I was you, I would just have one like tethered my, to my keychain that I just yeah, carried yeah. around. Like you know how a janitor has all the keys they need to get in everything. You need like headphones, a mic sock. I have my own headphones. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Well, but ears are way cleaner than that, like, throat phlegm that gets on there from mm -hmm. people talking right on this thing. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I didn't mean to gross everybody out. It's <laughs> pretty gross. Perhaps we should take one of the socks off of here and have it cultured. Uh, boy, would you find some new stuff on there? They're like, what is this? How is that even like, possible? <laughs> it was like, yeah, we thought that that had died out years ago. <laughs> During the break, um, Dan and I went into the, the break room area. I don't know if that's what you guys call it. What do you call it? Call over it there? kind of the green room, the lounge. Yeah. You know, we're it's more little... of a, like a traditional radio station Yeah, this over is here. an area with some seating. It's right next to the kitchen. Yeah. There's coffee. We, we go over there. We start talking immediately, yeah. basically about the things we were already talking about. Yeah. How interesting that that FHA change um, towards the end of the conversation, you know, you could see, I could see why it's something that the incoming administration wants to pause and figure out. I think it's really unfortunate timing. Um, like you said, I mean, let's repeat a couple of those remarks. You said it's being politicized. Yep. Which I guess is kind of expected. Because this is a president. I mean, you right. heard the inaugural uh, speech yesterday. Yeah, this is a president that's going to help. Get the, the, the people who've been ignored, get them attention they need, get them the help they need you know part of that's getting help to buy homes and and affordable housing yeah make housing more affordable and then them. within the hour of 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 signing in there's he immediately a, there's an action that makes housing under fha less affordable yeah so yeah it's being politicized and of course it's low so dan fruit. said that and then here's my response it's like well okay i if you want to argue that side i'll take the counterpoint those people that could have or should have been helped the average american that were expanding home ownership to and you just yanked that rug out from under them right away well here's the other side what about the rest of the americans that are uh, that don't want to be exposed to a program that's making housing artificially unaffordable for underdeserving people that artificially puts, affordable artificially affordable sorry um because those cuts that were proposed Real, I mean, I was excited about it. Like I said, I spent the last two weeks telling everybody about it. It was the word to get out. Um, it made the program really shine in comparison to the other products for low down payment um, home buyers. Yeah. So that being said, you know, which Americans you want to help? One side is, well, um, you know, you, you're all for the government continuing to have these programs that benefit these people and and realize that some of that burden is going to be carried by the taxpayer. And then the other side is um, you don't want these programs to be carried by the taxpayer, that people need to figure these things out on their own. And, and by the way, like you said, it's really politicized. I don't know if if summing it up to just those two halves is completely true because – the statement that came out was, we haven't had time to evaluate this very recent change to this program and what it means in terms of what exposure it leads the taxpayer to and or in the market. And, and you know, um, that part I can say I appreciate. You know, it's basically like, you know, you just yesterday before th this president was was inaugurated, you had the policies and programs of of a differing viewpoint, and it, it is, like Carson said in his testimony a week and a half ago, the timing of it is very peculiar because it doesn't give them the time 
to say whether or not that's a, a policy that they want to adopt or not. But you basically, because you made it effective on the 27th of January, you basically said, hey, swallow this pill. You have no choice. And they, the administration came in and said, oh, we have a choice. We're going to rescind it, and then we're going to study it. We're going to let you know if we're doing it at all. So we'll see. I mean, and obviously we'll bring you guys up to speed on that. Um, it's an interesting thing, though, because it – um, I, I talk about my friends um, from Taiwan frequently. Um, one of my really good friends lives half the time in Taiwan and half the time here. And so we went out to dinner last week. They were heading back to Taiwan. And um, the gal who's born and raised in Taiwan, she's um, watching the election and everything unfold. And she said, um, the two parties, this is the biggest drawback to the two-party system is that the course of governance swings almost violently from one set of policies to another. And it's hard to anticipate what's going to happen and who's going to win. And, um, and I thought, yeah, I mean, obviously we, we live in the thick of that this month more than ever. Right. I mean, ever since we found out, um, the results of our election, We've been trying to figure out as a country and an economy, how are you going to adapt to this swing? Because it, it's going to swing. We know it is. It is. It already is. Um, and then, by the way, also, she pointed out that Taiwan's the same way. They basically have a two-party system, and so they suffer a lot of those challenges. Um, it makes it different than those countries that have a government you know, that runs for generations with um, a guidance and a mission and a working towards something um, it's just different. And so that, that I guess, is our burden to bear is that we hand this baton off in a pretty abrupt fashion. And then you see things like this where executive orders start being signed within the hour about the thing that, you know, this incoming administration doesn't like about what the last one was doing. Um, yeah. So anyway, um, like I said, we'll keep you guys up to date on what happens there. I um, wouldn't be surprised if it gets reinstated because as we stated earlier, there's been, I mean, this isn't a new thing, this reductions or changes in general to the FHA insurance. It's happened in years past. It's based on the budget that has been seen that there's a surplus in funds still. And the, right. and the objective of HUD isn't to... It's not a profit yeah, engine. Yeah, they're not trying to make a bunch of money. They're trying to provide housing That's right. and cover costs to administer it. And so they saw that there's a surplus that we can give that some of those funds back. And and so I think it is just a, well, it's a pause to reevaluate, make sure that we agree with that decision as the new administration and I know that there's going to be heavy lobbying from the National oh, Association of yeah. Realtors, the National home Association builders, of Home Builders. They've already come out and made bankers, statements about it. I mean, anybody involved in real estate is going, as a trade, is going to be looking at this as like, um, again, you sort of were handed a, a pretty awesome reduction. And then and then once it was retracted, uh, you had, we had enough time to sort of um, romanticize about what it would mean. And... I was sharing with Dan, we priced out a couple scenarios this week where due to the reduction in FHA, it made the program significantly more attractive than it's ever been before. So there's no question. Well, I don't know about ever. I remember back when it was a even lower mortgage insurance premium. 
Was it was point five five for a while, wasn't it? Yeah, but that was also in an era where there was competing products where you could do an eighty twenty with no mortgage insurance at all. Sure. Even on investment properties, you could do that at times. So, um, you know, yeah, I'll, I'll stand by ever. In this climate, with property values where they are and the, the competing loan products, today, FHA is sort of the, um, it's so close in payment what somebody with um, good credit could do between a 3% down conventional and an FHA loan that you basically you would go conventional unless you were probably being steered by a lender that wanted the additional profit of doing FHA. Um, if you had lower credit, like a 620 credit score, then FHA um, really, is, it's a better program for you on a monthly cost basis. And We kind of found that cutoff to be around 660 and 660, 660 credit score? Yeah, 660 is really, if, if, I'm, if you're at my table and, and time is an issue and I'm trying to quickly figure out where we need to, to head with you, I run your credit. If you're above 660, I'm going to look at both and need to compare. If you're below 660, I know you're going FHA. I may still show you conventional um, to, to just sort of make concrete the rationale because the, there's this problem of loan officers uh, making assumptions or doing things where they're just not explaining well to clients. And so we try to really have that culture where we, you know, show you. I, I, yeah, I need you to see it so that you know that I, I am drawing from all of these baskets and looking through your option, I'm just picking one for you. So oftentimes you need to just demonstrate that with math. Um, switching gears only a little bit. Uh, the other thing that we talked about during the break, obviously, we didn't have enough time to develop it as much as we did now. But um, Steven Mnuchin, Mnuchin, yeah, Mnuchin proposed. It's a name secretary. that I read all the time, but I don't Treasury say out secretary. loud. Um, but yeah, so he's he's up for Treasury Secretary. Um, I don't know that he was confirmed yet. No, I don't believe so. No, I think there's only been two confirmations, and it's the. Two generals that are leading yeah. Homeland Security and what def is it defense or is it, I don't know. It's the two generals that are doing defense related stuff. So the Senate and Finance Committee um, was having a, a, a hearing for this Stephen Mnuchin. Is Mnuchin, that how you say it? Yes. To be um, Treasury Secretary. And he made some comments the other day that sent Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac's stock plummeting. Um, he basically said that he never endorsed the idea of cap and release. And so got to get a little, if you're not up to snuff on this, you got to get a little bit of a background on what cap and release is. But basically, um, let me back up a little bit more. This is where this show started. Back in 2008, Fannie and Freddie were private companies that were hemorrhaging capital. They were basically hitting a point of insolvency and they were taken into a status called conservatorship by the government. So we effectively took a private company that previously had private losses and private profits and made them basically for the time being a public entity where we, the taxpayer, fronted money to keep them um, through their insolvency issues, nurse them back to health. Fannie and Freddie have repaid 
100% of the capital that we, the taxpayer, by way of the treasury, paid into them, um, and then some. They make multi-billion dollar uh, dividends every year for the profit that they have. Again, kind of like the Fannie and, or the FHA thing we were just talking about where the programs are leading to profit um, so that there's excess liquidity. They have reserve requirements now that need to be kept. And when they're um, at, when they get to the end of the quarter, the whatever they were above, um, they cut a check back to the treasury that goes ultimately back into the general fund for um, their excess revenue. And so um, this was obviously not the intention. Nobody ever wanted this to happen to Fannie and Freddie. But we're at this crossroads today where what do we do? They're in conservatorship. They have been now for an unprecedented amount of time. And they're incredibly essential to the functionality of the 30-year fixed in this country. There's no question about it. It creates liquidity in the mortgage market where liquidity didn't exist yeah. in prior to their existence. Totally. Um, how many million dollars a month does Central Coast Lending fund on average? 20. Let's 20, call it 20 million. million. Um, I don't have 20 million bucks. No. <laughs> you don't have 20 million bucks. No. We together don't have 20 million bucks. I hope we do one day. That'd be really cool, yeah, that, by the that way. That would be cool. Um, probably never will. <laughs> um, so how do you fund $20 million a month worth of business if you don't have 20 million bucks? Right. In the old days, banks would be the ones who could make these loans. Because they, they could, might have 20 million bucks. And but, they could only make it up to the point where they had the deposits to support that. Well, yeah, and what happens if I, I'm the local oil tycoon and the railroad guy and the big gold miner and the farmer and whoever, we all put our money in Bank of Dan. Dan, here's 20 million bucks, and you go, sweet. Because I've got these applications over here of people that want to borrow 20 million bucks. Yeah. So you loan it to them. And, and now we, I come in here and I go, I just got this opportunity to buy a copper mine in Venezuela. So I need $5 million of my money back. And you go, dude, uh, I loaned it out right. to this guy that's building the, a skyscraper in New York or whatever it is, right? And so you say, I don't have it. So here's the deal. You need to come up with my money. So you would go to other banks. Hey, anybody want to buy a really good investment? I've made this home loan. And the other bank looks at it and goes, I don't know anything about that home loan you made. What are your underwriting practices? And you go, well, I mean, yeah, good as any. Sally in underwriting, she's she's got a great brain She's been for doing this. this for 20 years. Yeah, she knows what's a good loan and a bad loan. She uses the typewriter that print or the calculator that prints the tape and she tapes it on there. It's, it's, she's never had a loan go into default. And so then you might say, well, you know, did you do an appraisal? Who did it? How did you order it? All these things. You can think about this. This is every single aspect of the loan. Well, I loaned this money to this guy, Brian. The only thing about him was he had a six a 620 credit score. What bureau did you run? What was the late? How did you assess the late? What did you agree to about that? What were the terms? Did you adjust the interest rate for the additional risk of his lower credit score? And you're going to go... Well, yeah, because Sally, right? Okay, so now enter Fannie Mae, a uniform set of guidelines that provides guidance to everybody, 
if you follow these rules, then I can call you and I can say, hey, I need to sell $5 million worth of home loans because this guy needs his $5 million bucks back. They're all written to Fannie Mae guidelines. You're in the loan business. You know Fannie Mae guidelines. Got it. I'll take them. I happened and I was in the market. I needed to get $5 million worth of this, you know, deposit money on my end out to an asset like a loan. Okay. So it, it, that's where that liquidity is created. So absence of this, so you blow up Fannie Mae and blow up Freddie Mac. Now what? You go back to that age old thing. And by the way, the other thing is I can't loan you for 30 years. Like I said, I got, you know, I've got in our town, let's say it was just our town. I've got deposits from MindBody and, you know, some deposits from Amazon. I got deposits from Central Coast Lending and I got deposits from Central Coast Surfboards and I got deposits from Ribline. Okay. I got all this money. I can't loan you their money at a guaranteed rate for 30 years. Right. You may you may need it back and I may not be able to sell it. You know, it might even not even be sellable because um the people that might want to buy it can't really do that. And so then that's where the securities come together. As these things start to get securitized into bigger pools that are all known of those kinds of loans, that's what creates the bigger market that even allows banks to be able to sell a 30-year fixed rate loan. Otherwise, you go back to like the Great Depression era, people were getting adjustable rate loans that adjusted whenever and could be called due whenever, you know, because that's what it was before Fannie. You know, I I loaned Dan the five million bucks to build the housing track. And then the the oil tycoon comes and says, hey, I need the five million bucks. And I go, Dan, I know you thought you were going to have this for a lot longer, but I, I got to have it back. So now you're in a pickle. Whoa. I had a two-year plan, and it's only been four months. I can't give you the five million back. We're gonna have to take those houses then and sell them from you, and and now now we're totally damaging you because of this whole lack of liquidity within the bank because of these terms and all these things. So this is what the secondary markets afforded, and it worked brilliantly for years. Um, in '79, I think it was Johnson came along and was like, whoa. Fannie Mae is a private company. They're huge. And if there was ever a problem with Fannie Mae, it's going gonna, it's gonna to destroy the national economy in a, in a majorly big and tragic way. They need We need to offset that with another private company. Basically mandated the formation of Freddie Mac. So put Freddie Mac on the scene. At least now there's two. Okay, So the two of them catch stride together. Freddie never got even half the size of Fannie. They never even got a third the size of Fannie. Yeah, it was like yeah, twenty percent. It was a it was a twenty five seventy five ratio of Freddie versus Fannie owned loans. Yeah, so that's where you were leading into the crash, where Fannie and Freddie were these private companies. We we knew. I mean, we had the foresight to know that if something ever happened to Fannie, that we would be destroyed. So we created Freddie. They were these weird kind of government-sponsored and needed enterprises, but they weren't government-controlled. And then when they hit the skids and we all realized how detrimental it was, for all those reasons we just talked about, the liquidity, the 30-year fix, all these different things, the government saw that there was no other possibility but to take them into conservatorship and fix them. So we did, and now here we are today. So uh, Jim gave us the signal for a commercial break. It is a good time to take a commercial break. We're going to tie this all together here because Mnuchin, who's being um, currently vetted for Secretary of Treasury, 
um, has weighed in on what the future of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac is going to be. So that's what we'll talk about after the break. Stick around for more Mortgage Matters. Mortgage Matters with host Dan and Jason will be right back. Join the conversation by calling 543-8830 or 800-549-5832. This is Jason Grody with Central Coast Lending. Our loans are not trucked in from some big bank. They're raised right here on the Central Coast. No hormones, no GMOs, no antibiotics. Call today and get your gluten-free mortgage from a caring lender that knows you only accept the best for your family. Just call Central Coast Lending. When you buy or refinance a home, just call 543 Central Coast Lending is an equal housing opportunity real estate broker. California Bureau of Real Estate number 01839608. NMLS number 328358. For those of us who live here on the Central Coast, we know this is a unique place to have a home. And for over 30 years, Patterson Realty has been a vital part of San Luis Obispo County. Patterson professionals have led the way in real estate by adapting to new market conditions to make sales happen. What they offer is the quality of their people, agents working just for you. Get the experts at Patterson Realty on your side. Experience the Patterson difference. Call 544-8662 or online at pattersonrealty.com. We're the mortgage experts on the Central Coast. Central Coast Lending. Central Coast Lending. When you buy or refinance a home, just call 543-LOAN. Just call 543-LOAN. Just call 543-LOAN. We're the mortgage experts on the Central Coast. Central Coast Lending. Central Coast Lending is locally owned and operated with locations in Paso Robles, Morro Bay, Atascadero, San Luis Obispo, and Arroyo Grande. Through seven presidential administrations, bull and bear markets, and unprecedented change, Blakesley and Blakesley has been here helping residents of the Central Coast reach their financial goals. So if you need retirement advice beyond Social Security, want to roll over an old 401k, or simply seek guidance through an important financial decision, visit Blakesley and Blakesley in San Luis Obispo, Paso Robles, and Santa Maria. Blakesley and Blakesley for the service you deserve and the advice you trust. Member FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to Mortgage Matters on KVEC News Talk 920. If you missed any part of the show, log on to centralcoastlending.com for archived shows and more. Now, back to your hosts, Dan and Jason from Central Coast Lending. Come on, Hammond. Cue Albert Hammond and take one. in Southern California and um, really close friends of the family. In fact, we called them family. 
owned a company called Woodland Hills Equipment Rental. Okay. And it was there in Woodland Hills right off Ventura Boulevard. All right. And um, they had these, it was a family business that had been around for like a hundred years. And they had these pictures of the surrounding area. So you, you guys have been to Ventura Boulevard before, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, this is sung about in multiple yeah. songs yeah, and stuff. Yeah. Ventura Boulevard runs for miles and miles through oh, the yeah. heart of the valley. Yeah. And um, it starts in Ventura. Yeah, and <laughs> so, it, it, it's very, yeah. and it's in that part down yeah, there, like yeah. where it goes through, you know, Woodland Hills and mm-hmm. all the way down to like North Hollywood. It's all, it's very built up. I mean, yeah. parts there are skyscrapers on it, but most of the time it's a pretty large five lane wide road with parkings on the yeah. side. It, it's a big, it's a big road, big area, very well developed. Anyway, they've got these pictures of when they built the rental yard way back in the day. And it's like in a desert. Isn't that crazy? A full-on arid desert. Yeah, isn't that crazy? In fact, it's like it reminds me of, you know, Palmdale, Lancaster, how just mm-hmm. open it is. And so when you look, people start going, well, California has a serious water problem. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I think it always did. The people uh, that came here and built this place knew they were, like, building it like yeah, it, was, it was dry. Desert. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, Northern yeah. California, obviously a little bit different, but yeah. anyway, that's funny. Nice song about it never raining in SoCal. It does rain right it does. now it in does. SoCal. It does. Yeah, it hey, does. So just tying back real quick about this, um, what the future of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac might look like. Um, Steven Mnuchin in his testimony this week, basically said he's never endorsed this idea of nursing Fannie and Freddie back to health by recapitalizing them, creating reserve requirements and regulation, all that, and then just turning them back out to be private companies. At the same time, he said he saw the benefits of liquidity yeah. in the marketplace. Which was a little bit contradicting to Ben Carson, who the week before said... He didn't see the importance of the 30-year fixed and didn't also didn't believe that it was um, necessary for it to be um, government-controlled. And so, um, you know, bottom line is you, there's a little bit of a, a difference of opinion, and it, it, it kind of makes you want to double down a little bit when— when Carson waffles on understanding the significance of the thirty-year fixed, that was one of the things that a lot of the, a lot of the banking and mortgage and real estate and builder, all this community that cares so much about housing, we want to know that the people being put into power definitely see the significance and the necessity of the thirty-year fixed, the way that the U.S. housing economy works. Because yeah. think about it. Do you want to return to an era where your choice is to get a adjustable rate loan that's only going to be fixed for a year or three or five years before it adjusts? Certainly would give me some pause in considering buying a home. Well, especially at these higher loan amounts, because if your loan needs to adjust and your balance is a hundred grand, oh, oh well, your payment could go from four percent to ten percent. Okay, I can do that math, and I understand that my payment could go up 300 bucks a month. Got it. Now let's do that on a $500,000 loan. Your payment can double. It can be a big 
Shock. It's a huge adjustment. And you, in fact, most people would look at the potential of that adjustment and go, well, I, I need, because this is what we do in terms of housing anyway, right? I need to be able to do worst case scenario. Can I buy this house and afford this house? Even if I lost my job and I had to go get a new job, you know, like even I think about this from time to time. What if everything that we have and built just vaporized tomorrow and I need to go get a job? The grocery store or the the bank, the uh, the post office. I don't know where I could get a job. I'm a college graduate. I could probably get a job where I, I would hope I could get a job where I could make 25 bucks an hour. And I, and I hope that my wife could too. So in that worst case scenario, can we cover this nut? Those are the things you think about with a 30-year fixed. You're not projecting worst case scenarios on what might happen in year three. Right. Because we well know a lot can change in three years, can't it? Sure. So if you don't have a fixed rate loan, you're going to have so much less confidence in your ability to make an investment of that caliber because what happens three or five or seven or 10 years from now? I mean, we see these violent swings in policy from one election to the next. What about the company I work for or the company that I own? Um, I was talking with a friend recently about... How, how cutthroat the um, optometrist business has become lately. Optometrists used to make a lot of money. It was a good profession. Today, if you got bad eyes and you can afford it, go get a surgery and you could stop your ongoing eye care bills. And if you don't have money and you need to do eye care, guess what? Walmart's got a vision center and they're dirt cheap. So you can get an exam everywhere in town, all around town. And so, okay, we get that. The exams are cheap now. The optometrist in my town where I grew up, he made his money because he had glasses and contacts there on the shelf. You would go pick them out. He would work with you to set them up, send them to the lab. They'd send them back. You'd come pick them up. That was a business. Today, you get your $40 prescription. Guess what? 1-800-CONTACTS. Right, yeah. Or you go, or you go order them with lens crafters. They're in every mall in America. One hour while you wait. So this used to be a really relevant profession where you can make a lot of money. Has now been kind of blown out of the water. So um, anyway, point being, sometimes three or five or seven years, the something about your industry can change so radically that you're now irrelevant. And the 30-year fixed is something where, you know, I don't know. I Are you going to be in business and thriving in your mortgage company in five years? I sure hope so. You hope so? <laughs> Can you bet on it? Do you want to bet on it? I mean, you have you have to bet on it to some degree anyway. Um, do you want to bet that in five years will your mortgage could potentially go up 45%? Does that cause you any concern? It yeah, sure would. It better. <laughs> Right, unless you are the kind of person that just loves to double down on bets at all times. Um, but anyways, it shocks confidence. It's a problem for liquidity. We want to know, everybody involved in this industry wants to know that the people being put into power see the significance of the Fannie and Freddie model, whether it goes back to private or functions somehow public. Um, we want to know that they're going to preserve it. And then additionally, that they see the significance of a 30-year fix. Ben Carson freaked people out a little bit where he said that um, he waffled on the importance of the 30-year fix. And he said he wasn't sure it required any government backing at all. 
That part may be arguable. Maybe it doesn't need to be government-backed at all. You might need higher reserve requirements or regulation or something to sort of protect it in its private industry. Um, but, yeah, so anyway, this week when Mnuchin said that he wasn't ever an endorser of the capitalize and release strategy, the stock for Fannie and Freddie plummeted because that seemed to suggest that it would likely remain uh, in conservatorship or then turn into a public type of entity um, where the stock would effectively be valueless. People are very speculative. If you're owning that stock right now, it's because you hope that when it gets restored to a private entity, the value of the stock's going to shoot through the roof and you're brilliant for having held what you had or bought it, you know, um, in its current state from somebody willing to sell it. I have a hard time seeing those entities not have some type of government involvement because I, I, who would be then the gatekeeper of the guidelines, the underwriting criteria to which mortgages are underwritten? Are we going to go back to... You know, I, I only have my very recent memory to go back to, which is... We started talking about at the beginning of the right, show. You start allowing other investment banking type of firms to dictate what guidelines are. We saw they're not very good at um, at self-regulating. Well, and, and, and here <laughs> herein lies the challenge, okay? Because think about this. You've got today... Let's run through the list again of, of the most common loans, Biggest share by far for sure, Fannie Mae. Second biggest share, I'm going to argue, is probably FHA. So mm, I'm going to go maybe Freddie, Freddie Mac. Mac. Yeah. Probably a toss up in there. Because I think you're talking about a, I, I want to say the mortgage market's somewhere north of 10 trillion. And so if Fannie Mae still holds about. 80%. Yeah. I mean, I know the Fannie Freddie shares like 75, 25. FHA's in the greater in market, Fannie might be think, 55 or 60. Yeah. I got to believe Freddie's. But so, yeah. So, anyways. without getting tied up in the minutiae, you got FHA, VA, USDA. These are all, these are all the programs that are out there and all around, right? And VA. Mm-hmm. Um, of which. We separate them into two categories. We've got government and conventional. Government is FHA, USDA, VA. Conventional is Fannie and Freddie. Um, arguably, Fannie and Freddie today are kind of under the govy category because they've been in conservatorship for so long. Um, so if you did just turn them back out, one of the rubs here, and this is what we learned in the run-up, back in that Credit Suisse, Deutsche Bank, all that problem era, is that if you're in a regulatory environment where you can set the rules and you set the rules to slant the table in your direction to increase home ownership as you start to deviate from what were known principle and practices, obviously it it can lead to significant problems, can't it? I mean, we saw what happened. Sure. At the same time, there's some argument to be made is that, well, you know, you, you should have a board that is interested in protecting the health and vitality of the company for its shareholders and making decisions that protect and, and provide for the longevity of the company. But see, people get greedy. And, those, say, and what should Jason, have been. We already know that if we get too risky and get into trouble, we're so big that the government's going to jump in. Yeah, the precedent's been set. Right? 
that being said, then as the government, you could say, you know, since we know we have to jump in, um, you could require pretty significant reserve, right? Those stress tests that you you need to be able so stress tests for some of the financial institutions, if you know, I recall going back to like the those TARP era things is um you need to be able to survive the stock market going down fifty percent. The housing market value going down fifty percent. You have to have enough liquidity and capital on hand to be able to weather some of these storms dramatically. You know what? Fannie and Freddie were wildly undercapitalized. They were over leveraged and undercapitalized. What a what a nasty recipe for disaster. So this is where this it's been summarized that capitalize and release. It's been some as summarized as um, cap and release. That's where you hear when when you're watching the finance committee under these um, that they'll use that term cap and release. That's what they're talking about. Um, that's been kind of the best thing that's been talked about is well just they need to be capitalized and then turned back to private but like you said i have no confidence in that it's like you know that we all hopped right in and bailed you out anyway and the biggest problem was that you privatized the profits in the good season and then you publicized the losses when the storm came so if you're going to make the losses public the profits had better be public too and again, when you go back and look, Fannie Mae got like $100 billion worth of money um, during their insolvency period and today have repaid about $140 billion. Freddie Mac was something lighter. They had like $85 billion in losses and paid back like $120 billion. It almost makes you wonder, like, why, why wouldn't you just put Fannie and Freddie under HUD and make all three of those programs because you have an incoming administration right now that wants a smaller government right with less regulation and oversight with less exposure to the taxpayer so again you got this thing where you got these handoff elections where the pendulum swings from one to the other this is why these testimony hearings are such a big deal and then we see um, Steven Mnuchin makes a comment about, I've never been a fan of the, the cap and release and the stocks go 10% down immediately is because people are, we're just clinging. What are you going to do? What are you going to say? How do you see this working? Mm-hmm. Um, so as has been the theme for the last couple months now on the show, we keep saying, guess what? You get to wait and see. Yeah. You'll get to wait and see. Um, it does sound like, um, you know, as I watch some of these, the testimony hearings, the bits and pieces that I can watch, and then the things I read, for the most part, I feel good about the questions that are being asked. It seems like everyone's being really thoughtful and trying to turn over all the stones. And I actually do think, you know, when they talk about these things that um, it does seem like there's a fair amount of plan and understanding and makes me feel like some of the right people are going into the right places. Um, but then again, sometimes, you know, I'm, I just I just worry that so much hangs in limbo. I hope they get it right. <laughs> well, it's got to be in balance. You, I mean, like you said, this also it leads into the regulation, the proposals to repeal Dodd-Frank and, and things like that. You got to... It's got to be a cohesive plan with balancing regulation, with how to deal with these entities, and 
it's all got to work together. You know, the other thing too, yeah, interestingly enough, um, Steve Mnuchin, another thing that was kind of carved out for another sector of the market that cares a lot about what he says, um, he said there was no absolute tax cut for upper class. You know, he's talking about um, almost a difference of opinion in terms of tax policy as compared to what, you know, was promised on the campaign trail. Or I don't know if I should say promise, but what was touted as the would-be plan. Um, so anyway, it, it's interesting thing here. The, some of these cabinet picks seem to be um, a little bit different on some of the policies and stuff than even what was campaigned on. And um, yeah, I, I, it's hard to talk about these things without politicizing because I want to ask you, you know, based on some of these picks and these conversations and the testimony you're hearing, do you feel better or worse about it? Um, it's hard to say yet, yeah, I feel. Yeah, and I don't know that my opinion matters too much. It's really... It matters to me, Dan. What ends up happening. I was, you know, coming in here today, I I recognize that the whole world around us has been very politicized for the last year or more, and probably I, I know a lot of people are burnt out on it. I saw a great statement this week, you know, my my desire to be well-informed is at odds with my desire to be sane. And it really rang true with me, that statement. Um, but at the same time, politics dictates policy, which drives our economy and drives our housing markets and drives those things. So it's a necessity that we talk about it on this show. We um, you know, try really hard to be an environment where you can be informed but not be like inundated with opinion and and slant because there's so much slant out there wherever you go oh I, when i when i'm me personally i come to an issue where i i stop and think about this right okay well on this issue how do i feel about it and perhaps i need to kind of look at the issue you know how incredibly challenging it is to find something online where you got to go read a half a dozen or so different news sources to try to figure out what the moving parts are because somebody makes a statement about some issue or policy or right or something and it's immediately there's a slant. Oh, we're going to dig out and latch on to just this one part. And then you go on and look at it. You know, and I feel this way. It was kind of like how I felt about the propositions when I voted this <laughs> lot for the California propositions. I was like, well, A, there's too many things lumped in under one thing, you know? I'll take, for example, that um, the background check thing for um, ammunition. It's like, should you have to have a background check for ammunition? Well, if that was the only part of that, yeah, why not? <laughs> you know? Why not? Makes sense. Yeah. And if you're going to... Maybe a limit, like if you let's say shooting's your hobby and you like to go, you like to go to the gun range and you like to shoot um, the clay pigeons. The, the machine throws it in the air and you shoot it. It's fun for you. How many times do you do that a day, a week, a month? So if you need to buy, I get it. You need to buy your extreme. Let's say you need to buy sixty boxes of shotgun shells a month. Then. Um, that seems like a lot to me, but if you walk in and want to buy 
400 boxes of assault rifle bullets out of the blue on a Sunday afternoon? Um, maybe we should look into that. I, that doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. Why, you know, is, and I don't know. You know what I mean? But on that bill, that wasn't the only thing that was on there. There's five other things. And so whatever one thing strikes a chord, I feel like, so that's the thing for me is that all of these issues, it's hard to know exactly what they are. Somebody latches on to one particular part and then, oh, you should vote yes on this because it's that. Or you should be offended by this because it's going to segregate these people. Or you should vote, you know, no or this person or that person because this issue. Well, and an editorial gets, um, you know, passed around as fact in on the internet today. It's hard to discern between an editorial piece and a factual, not for me. Objective I get, piece. Not for me. I get my news from Facebook. <laughs> right. I mean, it's so challenging, and I think that's another thing. The way people get their news today on the internet is is kind of driving this polarization of people's ideals because you click on an article the internet says oh jason likes an article about guns. yeah it's marketing advertising oh. and marketing yeah and and our gun articles have ads from smith and wesson so you know we're gonna drive more articles about guns and, right. and things to jason and and we're not going to show him the stuff about background checks and things you know or whatever well then they go one step farther though and i know this is true too if you and I are friends on Facebook and you're reading and liking the things that are anti-gun stuff and I'm reading and liking the things that are pro-gun, it doesn't want us to now see each other's stuff. Right. So now I got a piece of software that's dividing, you know, us from even seeing like absent of how you and I might feel about the Second Amendment and what it means if it's outdated, all these kind of things. I I do want to just see that cute picture of your kid at the gymnastics meetup or whatever it is that that isn't political but now we've the software has helped divide us and find these issues to exploit and then feed more of it because of marketing dollar yeah, because ultimately it's about selling the ads that are yeah. tied to the article and so it all together we're in a a tricky place and not that it's ever been very different right because whatever newspaper you take yeah, I think newspapers were better, though, because as you flipped through the newspaper, you're forced to look at all the headlines. You can't pick and choose, or the internet's not picking and choosing for you. Sure. Yeah, your whole paper might have a slant, but still you're kind of challenged to see other things. Um, the, the internet's definitely changing people's, you know, obviously it's it's the way people get a lot of their news and it's about driving ad revenue and stuff. And so some of it's about the misinformation too, because you know, when I was, when I was trained for this job, check, 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 double check, right. Double check all your facts. And that doesn't happen anymore. Fake news necessarily. I mean, maybe it's hard to say absolutely not, but I'd venture to guess that there's a lot less fake news in a newspaper than there is on the internet. Right. There is. You know, there's standards. Depends on the newspaper. Well, yeah, it depends yeah. On the, yeah. Well, but. If you get in the Inquirer, maybe, you know. Yeah, I wouldn't consider but, that a newspaper. Yeah. <laughs> but. I yeah, was just going to anyway. name a couple that I won't. We can move on from there. Let's go back to the focus of our show. Um, these things, uh, to me, like the the what we're talking about, all these things are related to. People need to be accountable for themselves, critical thinking for learning and understanding the issues. Um, 
And again, all these things we do, it's a it's a desire. We're here on this show today to show you guys the the intricate level of care and thought that we provide um, in our business uh, in terms of these loan programs, all the way up to the laws that that govern them and the people that are you know, being elected to implement them. And, um, and we want to present it to you in a format where you're invited to participate in an area where you're not feeling threatened yeah. or alienated. Yeah, <laughs> so. it's a it's a kind of just a, a forum of information. And um, so really, if you guys need any kind of loan help at all, planning for a purchase a couple years down the road, refinance a loan that you have now to, to accomplish something, you want to buy a new home, whatever, 543-LOAN, 543-5626 or centralcoastlending.com. Have a great week, guys. Be safe. See you next week.